0: Because it is a fearful thing for the one saved by the work of the Holy Spirit to consider grieving that one who brought us into salvation. Everything here is hinging on knowledge. The scriptures teach us that with increased knowledge comes increased guilt. With increased knowledge comes increased guilt. Luke 10 verse 48, Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. With increased knowledge comes increased skill. Look at Jesus' words in John chapter 9. This is the conclusion of the story of the man born blind that Jesus healed. And remember, they were accosting him. Who did this? Let's find out who did this, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of that story, Jesus then says this from verse 39. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who may see may become blind. We see variations of that statement all over the New Testament that those who see will become blind. Those who are blind will see. Or those who hear will become deaf. Those who are deaf may hear. We see the same variations of that same statement all over the New Testament. So what Jesus is saying is that those who are blind may see, that they may receive illumination. But those who see, those who have received illumination, those who have received knowledge and understanding and reject it, well, they'll become blind. That's what Jesus is saying. So then after that, we read this, verse 47. The Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Oh, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. You see, plainly there, Jesus is connecting together the level of guilt with the level of sight, or the level of knowledge, or the level of understanding, or the level of illumination. Jesus says, If you've been illumined, if the Holy Spirit has shown to your mind, to your mental faculties, the truth of these things, and you reject them, then your guilt is high. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18-20. through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, and here it is, suppress the truth. They've received the truth. They didn't disbelieve it. But they suppressed it. They suppressed the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So there's knowledge about God. It's been shown to people and God has made it plain to people. And they, instead of disbelieving it, they said, well, we can't prove it untrue, but we don't like it. So we'll suppress it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So God doesn't just say, here, I've shown you about myself. I've revealed myself to a certain degree in the creation. Anyone can look around at the world and see that some something made this. This didn't just happen. So we can look at the world and we can know that this world was created. And God doesn't just say, you can see that in creation. He goes further than that. He says, you perceived it. I've made sure that not only did you see it, you perceived it and you understood it. Then he says, therefore, they're without excuse. Therefore, they are without excuse because they have seen it, they have perceived it. And with increased knowledge comes increased guilt. And this is what this, is what this whole unforgivable sin hinges on. It hinges on the one who's received knowledge from the Spirit and in the face of that knowledge, they say, I can't refute it, but I'm going to rebel against it anyway because I don't like it. I will suppress it. I will deny it. I will lie about it. I will claim that he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. I'll do whatever, but I will not yield to it. Jesus says there comes a point where that, can, that ship can no longer be turned around. Lastly, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through verse 29. Notice how the passages are getting more and more, what should we say? In your face, more and more stunning in their clarity. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, think of the sin of the high hand from Numbers 15. If we go on sinning deliberately, when? After receiving the knowledge of truth. After you have received the work of the Spirit upon your mind to show you these things are true. After receiving that, you go on sinning, not just in ignorance, but deliberately there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Does that sound like what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 3? Does that sound like Jesus is saying eternal guilt? Does that sound like that there is no more possibility of forgiveness? There is no more repentance. Does that sound like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Does that sound like blaspheming the spirit of truth? but instead a fearful expectation of judgment, eternal guilt, in Jesus' words, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? So under the old covenant, two or three witnesses were sufficient to establish knowledge enough to convict. How much more will the testimony of the Holy Spirit bring conviction to those who have received that knowledge and have denied it? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Does that sound like blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Who has outraged the Spirit of grace. So... That, I think, establishes what this unforgivable sin is. The unforgivable sin is having received significant understanding, significant knowledge of the truth of God. Again, not to be confused with being made alive to God, a conversion of the heart, uh, giving a new heart regeneration, but instead the Holy Spirit revealing to your mind, to your understanding, the truth of of the scriptures, the veracity of the scriptures, the trustableness of the scriptures, the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived, and died, and rose again, in the face of that saying, nevertheless, I will not yield to it. That sin reaches a point at which forgiveness is no longer possible because the Holy Spirit then retreats. So, can a Christian commit the sin? Absolutely not. Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Answer, nothing. John chapter 10. Who will take out of my hand those the Father has given me? Answer, no one. Can a Christian profane the illumination the enlightenment, the knowledge of the Holy Spirit to such a point that the Spirit withdraws from them? No. So why are we spending so much time talking about this? Why don't we just point it out, talk about it for three minutes and move on to a more encouraging passage? Because every sin has different manifestations. Every sin has different expressions. And though the believer, the one who is sealed in Jesus Christ, cannot commit any sin that is beyond forgiveness, ever. Nevertheless, the root of this sin can still manifest itself in the life of the Christian, albeit to infinitely less consequences. Nevertheless, the Christian can still sin with this basic root of this type of sin, which is to profane or disdain or despise the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 30. Let's just walk through this passage. Paul says this, verse 17, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So here's the contrast. There's Gentiles, there's unbelievers, those who don't know the Lord. You must set yourself apart from them. The way they live The way they behave, the way they think, the way they act is not how you should because they don't know the Lord. So there's this contrast right away. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The futility of their minds. Futility means something that is not accomplishing the purpose it was designed for. Their minds were designed to inform them of the truth of God to therefore lead them to repentance, and their minds are not doing that. Though their minds have perceived the truth of God, they have not led them to repentance, so they are futile. Their minds are futile because they're not producing the conversion that they would produce if that led them into repentance. They walk in the futility of their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Their understanding of God should have led them to the light. But instead, their understanding of God pushed them into the darkness. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are ignorant because their hardness of heart would not receive, accept, yield to or surrender to the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit brought them. So therefore, instead of their hearts leading them into, or the illumination leading them into repentance, it has led them into ignorance and hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Here's the contrast. That's them. The Holy Spirit has brought to them a certain kind of knowledge about the truth of God. They have not yielded to it. And it's resulted in futility of mind, darkness of understanding, but that's not you. Instead, as as regards you, that's not the way you learn Christ, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind. You see that? The mind brings the illumination, the knowledge, the understanding of the things of God. And that is what Romans 12, 2 fuels the transformation, fuels the Christ-like transformation in our life as we are renewed in our minds, right? So be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. And he continues on there for a few more verses with other prescriptions of how to put off certain behaviors, thought patterns, attitudes, lifestyles. uh, Put off, you know, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, etc. And then he concludes with this, verse 30, and do not. Not, here it is, grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you see right there, you are sealed for the day of redemption. You cannot pass a certain point at which you have committed sins that are unforgivable because you're sealed. Nevertheless, if you do not receive the Holy Spirit's enlightenment, and act upon it and obey it and let that lead you into Christ-likeness, Paul says the alternative is you will what? Grieve the Spirit. That is the same root sin on a much, much lower level. Nevertheless, it's the same root sin. It's the root sin of receiving enlightenment from the Holy Spirit and not taking it seriously, not yielding to it, not acting upon it, not surrendering to it, not submitting to it. And Paul says, if that happens, then what you do is you grieve the Holy Spirit. So that's the warning for us today. All of us in the room who are in Christ must be very careful must prayerfully and diligently, earnestly seek to not grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes to you, prompts you, teaches you, illumines your thoughts, shows you in your Scripture reading, shows you in your prayer time, this is an area. This is an area of sinful habits. This is an area of sinful attitudes. This is an area of sinful thought patterns. And I'm bringing to you this truth and now I want you to act on it. And we failed to act on it. That's grieving the Holy Spirit. That's not the unforgivable sin. But nevertheless, this warning stands for us in Scripture as warning us likewise to heed the illumination of the Spirit. This warning in Scripture shows up at least, depending on how you count it, at least six times. At least six times this basic warning comes to us in Scripture. When the Holy Spirit speaks, you either do one of two things. You yield to it or you grieve the Spirit. Now, all of these warnings are fearful warnings. The ones in Hebrews, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, as well as the Gospels, all these are fearful warnings. And they are saying to the believer, this is a fearful thing. So the question is, is there a place for the believer to fear? The New Testament believer, is there a place for fear in our life? I mean, doesn't Paul say to Timothy that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind? So does that mean that anytime that there's something fearful, we are to say, no, we are new creations in Christ. We have nothing to fear. No. What this means is, similar to what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, "...let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." In other words, there is no fear that we will ever be cast out of Jesus' hands. There is no fear that any sin will ever take us beyond a point of no return. But there is a fear that we would grieve the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, then the thought of grieving the one who drew you into the Savior, the one who called you out of darkness, the one who showed you your own sinfulness and your need of a Savior and then drew you into that Savior. The thought of grieving that one is a fearful thing. If that's not a fearful thing, if you can tolerate the thought of grieving the Holy Spirit with no fearfulness in your heart, then might I suggest you don't know Him and He does not reside in you. Because it is a fearful thing for the one saved by the work of the Holy Spirit to consider grieving that one who brought us into salvation. So the warning for us is this. God, the Holy Spirit, is constantly in teaching mode for every one of His children. Constantly. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us every son of his, he's chastising constantly. He's disciplining. Every believer in Jesus Christ is under the constant tutelage of the Holy Spirit. He is constantly speaking and working into your heart to say, here's a sinful pattern. Here's a thought pattern that's not glorifying Here's something we need to put aside. And so there are only... You might say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure... I know of what the Holy Spirit's telling me right now. You know, all of us, if we are in Christ, we should be able to say, Here, here's something the Holy Spirit is communicating to me right now. This morning, tomorrow morning, yesterday morning, as I sat in prayer, as I searched for Him in the Scriptures, here's something the Holy Spirit is, is working with me. If you can't say that, and you are in Christ Jesus, then the only option is that you have grieved Him. And having grieved Him, what the Holy Spirit does when you grieve Him is He gets quiet. When you don't listen and when you don't act, He doesn't go away. He just gets quiet. And so if you are in Christ this morning and you cannot say, here is what the Holy Spirit is is wanting me to put to death in my life right now, then seriously ask yourself, have I grieved Him? Have I not acted on something? Is there some sort of sinful pattern? I knew that he wanted me to put to death. And nevertheless, I made peace with it. And so the warning for us is right now, right where you are. If you do not know how the Holy Spirit is dealing in your life right now, then ask him right now. Ask him to grant you repentance for grieving his spirit, And ask Him to return and work powerfully in your heart, showing you once again what He would like you to do battle against and what He would like you to put to death and then empower you to do it. If right now you can say, yes, I know that the Holy Spirit right now is dealing with my heart in this area, in that area, in this attitude, in that thought pattern, whatever, then here's what you do. You pray right now, Holy Spirit, empower me to receive that. Do not stop talking. Do not not stop illumining, but instead empower me to act upon what you're showing me. That's our warning. Let me finish with just one quick story. This story comes from John Piper who tells this story in the context of this is how his father taught him to think of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and the importance of acting on the Holy Spirit's direction. It's just a quick story, a parable, if you will, of a buzzer a buzzard who sees a piece of ice on a river floating downstream. And on that piece of ice is a carcass. So the buzzard flies out there and lands on the piece of ice and begins eating the carcass. Now that piece of ice is floating quickly to the waterfall downstream. And the buzzard hears it. He knows that that the waterfall is coming. But he's just feasting on this carcass. He looks at his big strong wings and says, I can fly away in any moment's notice. But as the waterfall approaches and right at the last moment when the, when the buzzard has, has gotten what he felt like was the last possible bite, he spreads his big mighty wings to fly off the piece of ice only to find that his claws are now frozen in the ice. And that's just a little parable to teach us of the importance of acting upon the prompting of the Spirit of Truth. When he prompts... His prompting is not for three days from now, or next week, or next year, or when I can deal with this situation, or get around to that, or get around to this. When he prompts you, he's saying, I know you better than anyone knows you, and I'm saying to you, this is the time for you to act on this.